All right, how we doing this morning, everybody? Welcome to Trace. Yeah, you look great and clap. Let's clap. It's we're in church. It's a good thing. We can clap. We can be excited about being in church. Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. We're incredibly grateful to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Truly am. And so I also want to say really quick, welcome to those that will be watching online today. Thanks for joining the conversation. But I want to do something really quick. I want to just say something specifically to the guests that we may have in the room today. And this may get a little bit weird. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit weird, maybe. And so uh, just bear with me. But here's what I would want to say to you if this is your first time here. Um, your story is safe here. Your story is safe here. Now, I don't know you, and therefore I don't know where you've been, and I don't know what you've done. But regardless of how your story reads, it's safe here. One of the things that I would want you to know about who we are here at Trace, we're not people who, who used to be like you. We are you. We're people all hoping to fix our eyes on Jesus and figure out what this journey in life looks like by kind of setting aside things that maybe aren't as important as we make them to be sometimes and allowing Jesus to be the center of our life and follow him. And yes, we'll make mistakes. That's why his grace is so beautiful. But as we're figuring that out, one of the things that you should know about us, one of the things we've learned here is that if we learn to lose sight of ourselves, it gives us an opportunity to focus more on God and on others. And I think that's actually probably one of the best ways to represent who Christ is. And so I don't know what brought you here this morning, just like Corey said, but once again, we're glad that you're here. Well, guys, today we kick off this new series called 316. We're really excited and pumped about this series. And ultimately, like the goal over the next few weeks is to enlighten you and maybe, if nothing else, get you to pause and take a second look at John 316. Now, I want to give you a heads up on the kind of style of sermon that I'm going to be preaching today. Typically, and this is going to be kind of preacher talk, so bear with me for a second. Uh, in the preacher world, in the preaching world, there's two types of sermons. There's a deductive sermon, which guys like me would get up here and say, hey, here's our point in the very beginning, and we'll kind of build on that point. Or you can do what's called an inductive sermon, which is I'm going to build a case for something, and we're going to kind of land somewhere together. Today is going to be more of one of those. It's going to be an inductive sermon. And so I need you to bear with me and stay with me as we build a case for something along the way and hopefully arrive somewhere together that's actually a really important place for us to arrive. So with that being said, let me kick off our conversation today with a little crowd participation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, several different statements that should be familiar to you, and I'm going to read the first part of them, and then I want you to fill in the blank. Okay, here we go. If you can't beat them, okay, it's horrible advice if you really think about it, right? An apple a day keeps, okay, it's as hot as, oh, yeah, somebody just cussed in church. Come on, guys, we're in ch- can't believe you actually did that. It's supposed to be Hades. You're not supposed to say hell in church, right? I got you. You're as slow as? Yeah, I thought that would... I'm actually surprised how many people knew that one. I thought maybe our older generation would know that, but they got that one pretty well in the last service as well. How about this one? When you can't get the right words out, a cat's got your... Yeah, speaking of a personal hell right there, for a cat's paw to be in my mouth, just the thought of that is my own hell. Can all God's people say... No, no, don't do that. How about this? How about uh, when you're a little cr- more cranky than you probably should be, you woke up on the... Now, in my house, I got four kids, and so we don't typically use this illustration or this statement. Instead, we say, you got your poopy pants on? Like, is that, like, that's just what comes out of our mouths. And so Emily and I will even do that with each other when we're a little crankier than we should be. We look, you got your poopy pants on? You need your diaper changed? Yeah, you guys just lost some respect for me. Welcome to the Pennington household. All right. 
Well, guys, let's do, let's do something really quick. I think this will be beneficial for us. I want us to pause, and I want us to think about why those statements are so familiar to us. And I think the answer is probably likely. I think we get it. We're, they're so familiar to us because we've heard them over and over again throughout our lives. They've been repeated over and over again throughout our lives that they become familiar to us. And maybe they land in this category right here as something cliche, something that has become overly familiar, commonplace. I want to urge you to consider something today because I think that there are certain areas, certain aspects of our lives that if some things become too familiar, it actually can be dangerous for us. If some things become too familiar, it can actually put us at risk. Let me give you an example. Most car accidents happen close to where people live. You know why? Because there is a relaxation that comes with repetition. Let me say that again. There's a relaxation that comes with repetition. And so what happens is, you know, a lot of times this is the case for teenagers. Once they get in an area where they feel like they're very familiar, they stop paying as much attention as maybe they should. Now, that may be a great lesson for your teenagers today, but what does that have to do with our conversation? I'm actually glad you asked that. John 3.16 is potentially, I think we would all agree, the most popular verse in the entire Bible. If there is a cliche verse in the Bible, we would probably point to John 3.16. And friends, if it's even remotely possible that because that verse has become so familiar in our lives that we are going to miss any of its significance, we need to pause. We need to pause and we need to take a second or a third look at it to make sure that we're, we're hearing and we're seeing, maybe with new eyes and with new ears for the first time if necessary, the importance of the message that's behind this particular passage. You see, I think for many of you, especially for those of you that grew up in the church, I bet you've come along, you know, you, you've been somewhere like this, you've been in some environment somewhere, and somebody began to say John 3.16, and our first response is, yeah, 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 I know that one. I, I know that one. And because it's become so familiar in our life, we maybe don't pause long enough to understand the message that's behind the verse. You see, there's a reason why some things are repeated over and over again. Not because they're cliche, but because they carry a message with them that is worth repeating. Maybe you've heard this statement before. The couple that prays together stays together. Now, why is it that you knew that statement, aside from the fact that it's on the TV screen? You knew it because, listen to me, there are enough couples that have experienced the truth of that statement that they found it worth repeating. My wife and I would fall in that category. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that we have paused long enough, specifically in this season as we approach Christmas. I want to make sure that we have paused long enough to look at this verse once again with new eyes if necessary. And so without any further ado, let's read it together. Let me see if you know it. You fill in the blanks. For God so the that he gave his, that whoever believes in him shall not but have Friends, over the next several weeks, we're going to dissect this verse together. And we're going to take a deeper look at each and every section of it to make sure that we're not missing any of its significance because it's become too familiar. And so what I want to do, yes, I want to invite you to come back and be a part of this entire series, but here's, here's a hope of mine 
I feel like I talk about this to some extent every time, every time this year, you know, comes back around and we start to approach Christmas again. Because there's an unfortunate byproduct to this season, and it's called weariness. And I really do believe what I'm going to tell you next. I believe that if you will embrace this verse in a new way, it can replace some of your weariness with wonder. And I really do believe that that is the posture that we should take every single Christmas season as we approach the birth of our Lord. So what I want to do for us today is I just want us to look at the first six words in this passage and make sure that we spend an adequate amount of time in understanding every bit of its significance. The first six words go like this. For God so loved the world. Now, for those of us that grew up in the church, we know this, right? We get this. We teach it to our kids. We probably have it on a coffee mug somewhere. It may be the only verse that you've ever memorized. I mean, we get it, right? We hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know that one. But one of the things we probably haven't done is we probably haven't paused long enough to think about how an outside unbelieving world hears that. One of the things that I try to do as often as possible as a pastor is meet with unchurched people, meet with people who are far from God. I love to sit down and talk with them. I mean, it's just a passion of mine where I want to introduce people to God's love in a new way because oftentimes what they've learned about God really is not a good representation of who he is. And so when I spend time with these people, I begin to understand that they don't hear things the way that we do. And so for many people that would consider themselves maybe far from God, when they hear those first six words, For God so loved the world, maybe their response is this, really? Really? God loved the world so much that he allows all of these injustices that we see every single day? Really? God so loved the world so much that he allows hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children to die of starvation every single year? Really? I mean, if God loved the world so much, then why do we see so much pain and suffering? I bet many of you along the way have probably heard some type of sentiment like that. But do you know what we have failed to do? I think we have failed to show people the opposite side of that question, to show people the opposite side of that perspective. And I believe it begins with this question right here. Why should God love the world? Why should God love the world? A world that has constantly turned its back on God, disobeys his commands. Why should God love a world? Because it's actually the world and sometimes even the church who stands by and watches so many injustices take place. Oftentimes it's even the church that sits back and lives in plenty when there are kids that are truly dying of starvation. Why should God love a world so much, this world so much, when we are the ones, listen to me, we are the ones who cause so much pain and suffering. It's funny how we've taking that opportunity to blame God for all that, when really, that, that's on us. That's on us. Let me build on this idea for a second, because one of the things that you'll see when you read through the New Covenant, when you read through the New Testament, every time the word, not every time, most of the time that the word world comes up, it has a negative connotation to it. And so I'm going to build on this idea, really on this question that we just discussed together, why should God love the world? And so I'm going to read to you several different passages throughout Scripture. And as I read through these passages, I just want you to build that case in your own mind. I want you to build on that understanding, really build on that question that other people may have, but maybe the response that we need to have to their response, which is, why should God love the world? And so I'm going to read to you several passages, beginning with 2 Corinthians 4, which talks about the God of this world. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news, 
They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to read through these several of these, and every time I get to the word world, I'm just going to point to you, and you say the word world out loud. Let's see if we can make it through it. Do not love the, or anything in the, if anyone loves the, love for the Father is not in them. Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this. Mark chapter 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole, yet forfeit their soul? First John chapter 2, the, almost said, the and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Second Corinthians chapter 10, for though we live in the, we do not wage war as the does. James 4, you adulterous people, you don't know that friendship with the means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the becomes an enemy of God. First John chapter 5, for everyone born of God overcomes the, this is the victory that has overcome the even our faith. Last one, 1 John chapter 2, for everything in the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the... Why should God love the world? You know, sometimes if we're not careful, sometimes we feel like we should deserve God's love. We should demand God's love. And friends, I just want to remind you of something. If you haven't read through John chapter 3 lately, which is obviously where we get John 3.16. In John 3.18, it says we stand condemned already. We stand condemned without the life of Jesus, without the sacrifice of Jesus, and believing in that we stand condemned. None of us deserve the love of God. And so here's what I want you to do. I want us, I want us to kind of metaphorically build a pile here of all the things that we're learning together about the world including all the pain and suffering that we are the ones that often cause, including all the starving children that die because we are the ones who sit on the sidelines, including all those passages that we just read, but let's make it a little bit more personal. What is the worst thing that you've ever done in your life? Maybe go to one of the darkest moments in your life. Yeah, let's put that in this bucket as well. And then let's come back to those six words because I believe they're going to start to make a bigger impact in your life when you see how much the world does not deserve the love of God, yet he gives it. For God so loved, yep, all of this, including your biggest mistakes, including everything that you've ever done that really points to your, the lack of you being able to deserve or demand God's love. But that's who he is. And friends, that's what makes it more precious because nothing in this pile of goods would demand for God to love us. But yet he does anyway. Not only does he love us, he proves it. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in the midst of your biggest mistake, Christ died for us. Friends, the question isn't, well, how can a loving God, you fill in the blank, the question is, why would God love this world? And friends, as you begin to look at these six words, hopefully different, like my hope is that you'll never see the, the beginning of this verse the same again. As you look at these first six words, for God so loved this, so much so that he was willing to give us his greatest gift, his very own son, and that if we'll believe in him, then he gives us even a better gift, the gift of eternal life. As that begins to not make sense to you, listen to me, it should lead us to wonder. It should lead us to wonder. And my hope is that some of that wonder will begin to replace the weariness that many of us carried with us in this room this morning. 
When it comes to wonder, it reminds me of a story that I saw about three years ago. And I call these winks from God, and it was one of those moments where I think God uh, used some unique circumstances to point back to John 3.16 and the importance behind this message. And so without me saying anything else, check out this video. I want to ask you about one part of the book. When you talk about on your eye black when you wrote 3.16 yeah. in the Bible, can you tell the people about the uncanny coincidence that happened in a press conference a few years later? Yeah, well, we were playing for the national championship um, in college on January 8th, 2009, and I decided to wear John 3.16 under my eyes, and during the game, uh, 94 million people Googled John 3.16, and it was a pretty cool moment. Well, exactly three years later, we happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round of the playoffs when I was with the Denver Broncos, and I didn't even know that it was exactly three years later. It was ja uh, January 12th or January 8, 2012, exactly three years later to the day. I just went out there and tried to do whatever I could to win a playoff game. And afterwards, I'm going into the press conference because I love talking to the media. <laughs> and uh, our PR guy jumps in front of me, says, Timmy, did you realize what happened? I was like, yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. He was like, no, did you realize what happened? I was like, all right, Patrick, what's up? He said, it's exactly three years later from the day that you wore John 3.16 in your eyes. I was like, oh, that's really cool. He said, no, I don't think you realize what happened. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The ratings for the game were 31.6. And the time of possession was 31.6. And during the game, 90 million people had already Googled John 3.16, and it was the number one trending thing on Facebook and Twitter. And a lot of people will say, it's coincidence. I say big God. Yeah, I say big God, too. I call those winks from God. As we build this case, I want to ask you a question. What is the origin of the Christian faith? What's the origin of the church? Anyone? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes when I ask that question, people say, no, it's the Bible. The Bible is the origin of the Christian faith. No, it's not. It, the resurrection is actually the origin for the Bible as well. You wouldn't have the Bible in your hands if it weren't for the resurrection. And so we have this event that took place in history that's a pivotal event. It's the reason why we have the church. It's the reason why we have the Christian faith. It's the reason why we have this book called the Holy Word, God's Bible. It's the reason why we have these things because an event took place. Now, one of the things we probably haven't done is to step back from that and say, okay, we've got this incredibly important event that took place that kind of hinges, like that's what our faith hinges on. What was the motivation or what was the origin for the resurrection? I would argue this morning that it was these six words. The reason why we had a resurrection is because God so loved the world. Listen to me. The resurrection is what happened, but these six words or why it happened. Now pay attention to this next statement because it's going to get a little bit wordy. Friends, if we fail to see the why, which is God's main motivator, it's his love for the world, then the what, which was the resurrection, it won't make sense, which could lead us to miss the who, which we know is Jesus. Let me say it again. If we fail to see the why, God's motivation of love for the world, the what, which is the resurrection, won't make as much sense, which could cause us to miss the who, which is Jesus. Maybe you're starting to see why it is so important that we stop and we slow down. We remember that when we read the words, for God so loved the world, it's not just something that we repeat again. It's not just something that we hear and we remind ourselves, yeah, 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 yeah I know that. It should cause us to pause and reflect 
on God's main motivator for even sending Jesus into this world, which leads me to my one thing. Now, if you're new here to Trace, we share this, this idea, this thing called a one thing from time to time, and it's a way for us to kind of point you back to something that's really clear, a, a main point we want you to walk away with. And so here's my one thing for today. God's love for the world wasn't just an important thing. It was his one thing. God's love for this world, including you, wasn't just an important thing. It was his one thing. And it was God's motivation of love that put Jesus into motion and ultimately put us on mission. And this is why we take this statement so seriously around here. To leave a trace of God's love, his main motivation for sending Jesus into this world to begin with, we want to leave a trace of that kind of love, of that kind of sacrifice everywhere we go. And so the question asks, well, how do we imitate that? How do we imitate the love of God? If we're trying to leave a trace of God's love, not how I would define love, not how you would define love, but a trace of God's love, how do we imitate that, that? I love how Paul says this when he's writing to the Ephesians church. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in what? Walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Which leads me to my last point. How do we best be imitators of God's love? I think the clear answer is that we point to it. But when I say it, I actually mean who. I think the best way that we can be imitators of God's love is by sending people to love himself, the very person that was sent to us out of God's main motivation of love. Let me do something for you really quick. We read in John's Gospel that God is love. Actually, it's not John's gospel. It's one of his letters. In 1 John chapter 4, we read that God is love. We read in John's gospel that Jesus and God are one. Therefore, we could say, since God is love, we can also say that Jesus is love. Set this over here for a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church. He says, hey, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to help define what love is. Love can become so subjective, can't it? I mean, we all like to define love, specifically this culture today, and what we think love is or what it isn't. But Paul defines it really well. He says this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not rude. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. It always trusts, it always protects, it always hopes, it'll always persevere. Love never, you know that one too. And since we know that Jesus is God, if God is love and Jesus and God are one, then Jesus is love, we can actually replace the word love with the word Jesus in this passage. Jesus is patient. He's kind, he doesn't envy, he does not boast, he's not proud, he's not rude, he's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. Somebody needs to hear my next statement. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't delight in evil, but he rejoices with truth. He always hopes. He always protects. He always trusts. He'll always persevere. Jesus never. And that's why we point to him and nothing else. There are so many other things in our life, including me, including you, that will fail. And will fail people. But Jesus won't fail us. Friends, if we want to be an imitator of God, and we also know that if God's main motivation for sending Jesus into this world was love, if we want to be imitators of that, then we got to send people to Jesus. So let's make that really tangible this morning. When you walked in here this morning, you received a little name tag. 
And I want you to hold on to that for a second as I describe what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for us to write on that name tag somebody that we would hope, somebody that we would hope could be introduced to the love of God. Somebody that we would hope that would maybe accept an invitation to come in here one Sunday to hear about the love of God. Somebody that we would hope that would get to know Jesus because it's only Jesus who will never fail them. And what I want us to do is I want you to write their name. I want you to write their name down on that name tag, and I want you to put it on the left side. And the reason the left side is because the first service put it on the right side, but underneath the chair that you're sitting on, and hopefully we'll fill every single one of these chairs based on who was here last service and this service, but put it on the left side. And guess what? Guess how many chairs are actually in this room right now? I'm kidding. No, that's not the case. That was totally... <laughs> It would have been awesome, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> that was not a wink from God. That's what I'm saying. Um, but will you allow this to be a moment for two reasons? Number one, will you, will you just chew on those first six words of the most repeated passage, the most repeated verse in Scripture, for God so loved the world? Would you allow your mind to never look at those first six words the same again? Because we didn't deserve it. There's nothing that we'll ever do to earn it, but he gives it to us. Even in the midst of our biggest failures, that should lead us to wonder. But I also want to, once you take some time as Corey comes up and he leads us in a time of response, I want you to take some time and I want you to pray over the name that you put on that tag. And let's get real for a second, ready? It could be your name. It could be your name. Maybe you haven't accepted the love of God in your own life. Maybe you've never put your trust and faith in Christ the best gift that God could ever give you out of the motivation of love. And so maybe you need to write your name on there and put it underneath the seat. That's completely okay. I'm going to pray for us right now. And then Corey's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Father, I pray that in a way that only you know how, that you would take us from a spirit of weariness to a spirit of wonder. And Father, as we look at this passage, the most repeated passage in all of Scripture, as we look at it from this point forward, that we will never see at least those first six words again. Because there was nothing that we will ever do, and there's nothing that we ever did to earn that love. But you give it to us freely. And you demonstrated that love by sending your Son to us. And so God, I pray that we begin to rest in that, that we begin to see it with new eyes, we begin to hear it with new ears. And Lord, for all the names that are going on name tags and will be put underneath one of these chairs, Father, I pray that you begin to move in their life in a way that's beyond us and we're okay with that, and that maybe those stories will come back as winks from God. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said, amen.